0: On the 18th of June, 1815, on the bloody battlefield of Waterloo, an Allied army finally brought to an end decades of almost continuous conflict. The effects of these wars against the French, led by Napoleon Bonaparte, spread through every aspect of life here in the West Midlands. In our new lavishly illustrated book, Fortunes of War, we explore the impact of these hostilities on the men and women of the region. We reveal little known stories linking the West Midlands and Napoleon's own brother, Lucien, who sought refuge here. We explore the legend of the Birmingham button maker who wandered into the middle of the battle and recount tales of the Shropshire men who guarded the banished emperor on Saint Helena. In this programme, the editor of History West Midlands, Malcolm Dick, and the book's editors, Andrew Watts and Emma Tyler, both lecturers in French studies at the University of Birmingham, join the publisher, Mike Gibbs, to tell these fascinating stories. Malcolm,
1: just how much of a historical watershed was the Battle of Waterloo?
2: Waterloo ended the French Wars. It ended a period when Britain and indeed other European nations were involved in a long period of conflict with France. It marked the defeat of France and also it marked Britain as a dominant world power. And together with the Battle of Trafalgar, which was Britain's huge naval victory in 1805, we can say it signified Britain's importance as the world power internationally for much of the rest of the 19th century.
1: And how did this period of the Napoleonic Wars
2: actually affect the West Midlands from its beginning to the Battle of Waterloo? The French Wars began in 1793 and the wars stimulated in many ways the West Midlands industry because the West Midlands produced a lot of swords, it produced a lot of guns, produced a lot of munitions generally. So there was a stimulation for the production of weaponry for the British Army and Navy. However, the wars also disrupted trade and many of the export markets in which Britain had been involved were severely handicapped. So we can look at aspects of the West Midlands economy and we can see in the late 18th century and also at the time of the end of the French Wars and the aftermath of Waterloo, West Midlands industries entering periods of depression. In fact, Birmingham in particular in the late 18th century entered a period of significant economic stagnation. Its population may even have declined. With the ending of the French wars after Waterloo, many troops were demobilised. They returned home. They didn't have work to go to in many cases because there was a slump in the West Midlands metallurgical industries. Then it was difficult for them to get employment. The general slump in industry marked a decline in living standards as well for many industrial workers. There were problems in agriculture as well. So we can see the immediate aftermath of Waterloo as being quite traumatic for many people in the West Midlands.
1: The book produced by History of West Midlands is called Fortunes of War. One of the fortunes or areas of fortunes being made in the Midlands, I guess, was the arms industry. Because as I understand it, virtually every musket that was fired by the British Army at Waterloo was either made in Birmingham or made of parts that were made in Birmingham. Could you explain to us which of the families benefited and particularly focus on the fact that
2: these were Quaker families in some instances? In some instances, they were. The most important family was the Galton family. At least that's the family we know most about. It was a Quaker business. The Galtons had long been involved in producing guns in the early 18th century. They made a lot of wealth out of producing guns. The family had also been heavily involved in supplying guns as part of the slave trade. So there was a double whammy, so to speak, in terms of the relevance of the Quaker gun-making industry through the Galtons for the Quaker Society of Friends itself. And the Galton's found themselves in a number of intellectual and religious difficulties trying to justify what they did to their Quaker colleagues. Samuel Galton, Jr., who led the gun-making business at the end of the 18th century, he was a member of the Lunar Society as well, was forced in effect By the early 1800s to withdraw from any active involvement with the Society of France because he was widely criticised for his support for gun-making and the Quakers were supposed to be pacifist. So would you summarise under this title of fortunes of war that
1: the Napoleonic Wars, which ended with Waterloo, saw the rise of some sections of West Midlands society and the decline of
2: others. I think that's true. The impact upon the West Midlands, though, we can say was largely temporary in terms of its impact upon a recession. Obviously, many trades do decline as a result of technological change and industry operates within a cyclical fashion. We can see... The Ironbridge iron industry entering a recession in the early 19th century. The Birmingham gun trade and the Birmingham metal industries eventually revived with the opening up of trade again with Europe and the United States, which had also been temporarily retarded during the French wars. We can see a recovery And in many ways, that's a tribute to the innovative nature of many of the entrepreneurs and skilled workers who were willing to apply technology to look for additional markets and to innovate and change in the light of altering economic circumstances. But the French wars definitely had, we can say both short-term and long-term, mixed effect upon the West Midlands economy.
1: The French Wars, as Malcolm refers to them, were known by others as the Napoleonic Wars, and the Bonaparte family reached out all over Europe. It's a surprise to those people who are reading Fortunes of War to find that there was a West Midlands link to that. Emma, you've actually uncovered a lot of Fascinating material and a fascinating story. What is that link between the Bonaparte family and the West Midlands?
3: Napoleon Bonaparte had four brothers, the second of whom was called Lucien, and Lucien Bonaparte had played a significant role in bringing Napoleon to power and in keeping him there. He'd played a number of significant roles in government, but In 1804, when Napoleon declared himself Emperor of the French, this was the point at which Lucien Bonaparte began to get quite concerned about the increasingly imperialistic tendencies of his brother. To begin with, he decided to remove himself to Rome, but that wasn't far enough. So he decided that along with his family, he would send himself into voluntary exile in America. He set sail from Rome... In 1810, and the British, being rather concerned that he might, once he got to America, start to engineer plots towards the British, detained him at sea off the Sardinian coast and they took him off to Malta. Once he was in Malta, they decided that they weren't quite sure what they wanted to do with him, so they spent a couple of months deciding. And in the end, they took the decision that they would welcome him on British soil as a prisoner of war, if welcome is the right verb to use, that they thought that they'd rather keep a closer eye on him on British soil. So this was Lucien, along with his family, so his wife, his two stepdaughters, his five children that they had together as a couple, his tutor, his chaplain, his doctor. There was an artist there. He had a secretary. It was quite a big retinue that he took with him, 23 Corsican and Italian servants as well, eventually arriving in Plymouth in December 1810.
1: And what brought him to the West Midlands?
3: The plan initially was that he would go to one of Britain's parole towns. Britain had designated parole towns that would receive officers who were prisoners of war. It was decided that he would go to Montgomery, to one of the residences of Lord Powys. Lord Edward Clive, who was the son of Clive of India. But I get the impression that uh, Lucian wasn't particularly happy to be sidelined in this way, to be sent out to the outer reaches of Britain, as it were, and he wanted to be a bit closer to the action. So in the end, the decision was taken that he would settle in Ludlow, which was another one of Lord Clive's residences. They were there for six months. They became quite a tourist attraction, They attracted a lot of attention, positive attention. They threw lavish parties. They spent a lot of money, I think. But at the same time, there was a lot of ill feeling towards the French because of the wars. So things took a turn for the worse. The townspeople weren't very happy to have this family in their midst. I get the impression that the servants were quite feisty, hot-blooded. There were altercations between the servants and the townspeople, incidents of stone-throwing and so on. So after six months, Lucian was casting around for somewhere a little bit quieter to live. And he settled upon the estate of Thorngrove, which is in the parish of Grimley in Worcestershire, just north of Worcester, on the banks of the Severn. Lovely estate a little bit more removed from the action. And I think it's a measure of the extent to which he had a certain amount of freedom that he was able to purchase this estate. And he had a... While he was there, he had a four-mile range of parole so that he was able to go into Worcester. When they're on the um, Thorngrove estate, Lucien acts the part of a true English country gentleman, albeit one that doesn't speak very good English. So he shoots... He assembles a stable of horses. There's a a lake on the estate which he stocks with fish and he buys a pleasure boat so that they can enjoy the pleasures of the lake. He buys a gig. They lead a very exciting, rich life while they're there. They welcome all sorts of visitors, including the Duke of Norfolk, a very young Charles Babbage, for example, all sorts of people. I get the sense that it's a very lively household, a musical household. There's a harpsichord, there's a guitar a four-pedalled piano, all sorts of music and laughter going on all the time. Lucien and his wife were both writers. They both wrote works while they were at Thorngrove. So there were moments of quiet contemplation as well. Lucien built himself what is usually referred to as an observatory because he installed a Herschel telescope on site But that's where he also did his writing. So he took himself off from the family to write every day. In a
1: noisy family like that. That's right, yes,
3: with with the 23 Corsican and and Italian servants.
1: And what did they write? (laughs)
3: Lucien was writing an epic poem about Charlemagne, which was greatly anticipated. People were very excited to read it before it was published. The reactions were were relatively positive. Byron thought that that it was a marvellous poem. He was electrified by it, that's what he said. The trouble was that by the time it was published, Lucien had left his exile, he'd been permitted to leave, he'd reconciled with his brother, and that meant that the inevitable reaction to his writing took a turn for the worse, really. In his memoirs, he refers to the fact that he met his poetic Waterloo, Uh, in England when he published Charlemagne. Alexandrine's story is even more uh, fascinating, I think. She wrote, again, it was an extended poem, on the subject of Bathilde, Reine des Francs, so the Queen of the Franks. Alexandrine was a woman that Napoleon considered to be at the root of all his problems with his brother. And so he took steps, when he got wind of this publication, to prevent it. And there's this marvellous story. So in the summer of 1811... The house had a mysterious visitor who declared that he was a huge admirer of Madame Lucien and of her writing and of her works and spent ten days with them discussing her work with her. But he turned out to be a spy, and what he was actually doing was making notes on this publication, taking them back to Napoleon. And what Napoleon did then was commission another female writer to write an equivalent sort of text, the publication of which was rushed out, so it was commissioned within 36 hours. And then, of course, that put an end to Alexandrine's literary pursuits. But it's an exciting story.
1: After the end of the Napoleonic Wars, after the Battle of Waterloo, what happened to the family then?
3: Once the terms of Napoleon's abdication were being worked out, Lucien was released from exile. He requested safe passage through France back to Rome. He wanted to get back. The Pope had made him Prince of Canino. And so he had a seat in Rome and he wanted to go back to the safety of that. The safe passage was refused. And so the chaplain who'd come over on the ship with them, the chaplain concocted this cunning plan where he requested a passport from the British for himself and for a clerk... And it is believed that Lucien disguised himself as the clerk and that way escaped through France back to Rome. Lucien left, the family stayed behind, then the family came as an entourage afterwards. The contents of the house were sold. This is where the newspapers of Worcestershire go to town because they describe the contents of the house in great detail. They're very excited by the auctioneer and the whole process of the auction and so on. They list the contents down to the £650 of good family cheese uh, for sale and the 218 bottles of crusted port. And there are chandeliers and mirrors and beds. There are far too many beds for the number of rooms in the house, but there were clearly beds for all of these servants and so on who must have been higgledy-piggledy on top of each other. Andrew,
1: Emma just mentioned that the newspapers had a great interest in the Bonaparte family. Obviously, the Battle of Waterloo and the Napoleonic Wars were the big news event of the time. I think you've done some really interesting research into how it was reported
4: here. Absolutely, yes. Well, News of Wellington's victory at Waterloo took a number of days to reach Britain. Wellington actually prepared a dispatch for the British government on the night after the battle, during the night of the 19th of June. And that dispatch actually arrived in Britain on the 21st and was subsequently published in a special edition of the London Gazette. It was the London Gazette Extraordinary on the 22nd of June. And those newspapers gradually found their way to Birmingham. We understand that a large crowd gathered outside what was the Hen and Chickens Hotel in New Street to hear news that uh, Wellington had defeated Napoleon and that the Napoleonic Wars were in fact over at last. The West Midlands newspapers, of course, very quickly picked up on the story. They republished Wellington's famous dispatch over the days that followed. So for example, Arras' Birmingham Gazette picked up on the dispatch, the Staffordshire Advertiser, the Warwick and Warwickshire General Advertiser, all of them clamoured to publish this news that uh, Wellington had finally defeated Napoleon at long last. And there were lots of Waterloo-related anecdotes as well that continued to appear in the regional press in the years after the battle. And indeed, throughout the rest of the 19th, 19th century. Some of these anecdotes were quite fanciful, some are more truthful than others, I suspect. To give just one example, in 1824, the Coventry Herald published a short story about a sergeant, Sergeant Weir, who'd uh, served as a pay sergeant for his regiment. This meant that he collected money from the men for clothes and supplies. And normally, this would have meant that he didn't have to engage in active combat. But in fact, on the day of the Battle of Waterloo, according to the Coventry Herald, Weir had requested permission to fight alongside his fellow officers. That permission was granted, and he was subsequently killed in the fighting. But before he succumbed to his injuries, he actually wrote his own name in blood On his forehead just to confirm to whoever found his body that he hadn't actually just run away with the regiment's money so there are lots of tales to do with waterloo that uh, appear in the local press in the years afterwards
1: and one of the famous tales i guess is the birmingham button maker
4: absolutely what
1: exactly was that tale
4: Well, the story of the Birmingham button maker, it's one of the most intriguing connections between the West Midlands and Waterloo. The story actually originates in a diary entry, in the diary of the artist Benjamin Hayden in 1843. Hayden claimed that one of Wellington's favorite after-dinner stories concerned a man, a tourist, who'd strayed onto the battlefield at Waterloo during the midst of the fighting. Who was this man? Well, we know that he was a button seller from Birmingham, he'd been on business in Brussels, and whilst he was there, the Battle of Waterloo broke out and uh, the button maker was suddenly taken with a bout of curiosity to see for himself a battle live and in action. So he rode out the short distance to Waterloo and suddenly found himself in the midst of the fighting. Wellington saw this man across the battlefield, riding around between the fires and the gun smoke. And the battle is in its quite late stages by this point. Wellington is running out of officers to carry messages across the field for him. So he sees the button seller, and he beckons him over, and he asks him what he's doing there. Well, the button seller explains, he's simply curious to see a battle. At this point, Wellington, quite impressed by the succinctness of the man's answers, says, well, would you be willing to carry a message across the field for me? So the button seller agrees to take a message across the field to Marshal Kempt, who was the commander of the 8th British Brigade at this point. So the button seller heads off with his message. As the story goes, Wellington settled down to have a little snooze on the battlefield, reportedly under a copy of the Sun newspaper. We don't know if that detail is true or not. But when Wellington awoke a few minutes later, he saw that Marshal Kemp's regiment had actually moved across the battlefield. It changed its tactics. And Wellington realised at this point that the button seller's mission had been a success. And he exclaims, well done, buttons, at this point. He's delighted that the mission has been achieved. Is the story true? It would be nice to think so, wouldn't it? The truth is, we don't really know.
1: Although there were many British regiments fighting on the battlefield of Waterloo the regiments that represented the west midlands were largely absent Mm -hmm. however there were important figures from the west midlands in the command of the british army
4: well you're absolutely right there were no west midlands regiments as such at waterloo however this didn't mean that no soldiers from the region actually fought in the battle some joined other regional regiments scots guards for example contained 13 men from birmingham the 32nd Foot from Cornwall had 31 Birmingham soldiers among its ranks. But one of the more prominent figures here, of course, was Field Marshal Henry Paget. Paget was a famous cavalry general in the British Army. He's also the subject of one of the most well known Waterloo anecdotes. In the closing stages of the battle, he was actually injured by a splinter from an explosive shell and he lost his leg. His right leg was badly injured. Wellington on his horse was just a few yards away. Um, Paget told him, by God, sir, I've lost my leg. And Wellington replied with classic British understatement to this, by God, sir, so you have.
1: Famously, after Waterloo, Napoleon is sent off to St Helena. You would think that the West Midlands link ended there and then but it didn't did it
4: it certainly didn't as you rightly said napoleon was sent into exile on saint helena in the south atlantic just to make sure he definitely couldn't escape this time but for two years between 1815 and 1817 he was guarded by a regiment of soldiers from the 53rd shropshire regiment of foot And they were present during what was a very difficult period, of course, for Napoleon and a period of a very fractious relationship between Napoleon and the governor of St. Helena, General Sir Hudson Lowe. The problem, of course, here was that Napoleon didn't see himself as a prisoner. He saw himself very much as a guest of the British. He stayed at Longwood, which was uh, Sir Hudson Lowe's summer residence. But whenever he rode out on the island, he was always watched and always accompanied by men from this uh, Shropshire Regiment. Napoleon, of course, was forever a military man, and he had a fundamental respect for his fellow soldiers. He referred to the Shropshire Foot, the 53rd, affectionately as his Red Regiment and they presided over Napoleon's exile for a period of two years. So that connection between the West Midlands and Waterloo was certainly an enduring one that continued long after the battle itself was over. So Malcolm's
1: given us a sense of what the impact was in terms of its reality to the West Midlands. How was it commemorated?
4: The battle itself was commemorated in a variety of different ways often in very formal manners, too. Anniversary dinners were held throughout the region, for example, annually in the years after the battle, echoing, of course, the annual dinner that the Duke of Wellington would give every year for the officers who'd served with him at Waterloo at Apsley House in London. We know, for example, that one dinner was held in Warwick in 1830, accompanied by a marching band of veterans and so on to celebrate and commemorate the 15th anniversary of the battle. But remembering Waterloo wasn't just a purely solemn activity. We know, for example, that in 1834, Ryan's Royal Circus in Digbeth staged a Waterloo reenactment which included a full-scale cavalry charge performed by the circus's equestrian company. The year after that, 1835, the Theatre Royal in New Street also staged a play on the battle. So as the years passed after Waterloo and the pain of the battle in many ways subsided, the memory of Waterloo began to subside, the difficulties that it had caused for many families. It perhaps grew easier to commemorate what was a great British victory with a sense of enjoyment and frivolity too. Andrew,
1: as one of the co-editors of this book... Let me leave you the last word. What did you get out of this? What did you learn about the West Midlands and Waterloo?
4: It's been a totally fascinating project in so many ways. We started out with what was just a very small idea to explore the connections between the West Midlands and the Battle of Waterloo. And I've been fascinated and intrigued to have revealed the strength Of those links and there are so many incredibly the fact that one of Napoleon's own brothers was in our own regional midst in the lead up to the battle is truly fascinating in my own chapter of course I wanted to know more about how news of Waterloo was reported in the West Midlands what did local people know about it what did they know about the fate of the soldiers who'd served at Waterloo and so on and I think the book explores and indeed answers many of those questions but it's been a truly fascinating and inspiring Inspiring project in a whole variety of ways.
0: You can learn much more about the West Midlands at the time of Waterloo in Fortunes of War, a special, beautifully illustrated History West Midlands book. Order now at our website www.historywm.com.